Tonight we're continuing our study of Ephesians. We began this, I said this this morning, sometime in the past. I don't know, when was that? Three weeks ago. We began it three weeks ago, our study of Ephesians. Uh, considering God's eternal purpose. Of course, we begin in the first 14 verses of chapter 1 with this idea of his eternal purpose, right? Ephesians 1.11 in him we have obtained an inheritance having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the, fir uh, we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. One of the things I really wanted to emphasize last week not last week, three weeks ago, is the idea that God is the main character of this story, right? God is the main character of reality. It's not us. Even in our own lives, we're not the main character. He is the main character who works all things according to the counsel of his will, his purpose, right? We, that was one of the main emphases on the first 14 verses of the book. And if you're not here for the first lesson, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it because we covered a lot of complicated ground, right? The ideas of, of predestination and his eternal purpose and the necessity, the priority of God's praise throughout all things. And three times in the first uh, 14 verses of Ephesians, Paul uses this phrase to the praise, to the, to the praise of his glory, right? This idea that it's about God and his praise. He has that in the last verse there, right? To the praise of his glory. He uses that phrase three times. So when we're thinking about the complicated nature of this, God's purpose throughout all of history, the predestined uh, fate of his chosen people and the salvation that is brought to us. I think Paul perhaps knows how complicated it is because literally the next few verses are a prayer on behalf of the Ephesians for understanding. His next thought, I got to pray for these people so they can understand what I just said. And might I say we need that prayer, right? To understand what Paul is saying here. Ephesians 1 verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the heart, eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his, his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe, toward us who believe, rather, is what he says. What does he pray for them? What does he want God to do for them? That God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The word revelation, a little bit of a charged word, uh, is we think about in, in historical context, in the context of the apostolic ministry, revelation, which had a specific meaning, uh, the revelation, the gift of revelation, which would be supernatural revelation. However, there is a general word. It's a general word to be revealed, for something to be revealed to us, all of scripture is a revealing of God's will. And he's asking that they would have this understanding, right? The spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. His, of course, gift of revelation. He says several times, the things that I'm writing are, are uh, from the Lord, right? It's not, I'm not just making them up. I was given to them by revelation from Jesus Christ. But the end goal of that was so that we would understand, Right? that we would have the ability to comprehend what God is doing for us. 
Understanding every spiritual blessing, he says in verse 3, it was blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's hard. It's complicated because, well, for a number of reasons. Number one, these things are inherently opposed to the flesh, the way the world thinks about things. The way that we think about things is not inherently, automatically spiritual. Which he says in another place, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Part of this is what we talked about last time in the idea of the predestination and his, uh, the things that he has chosen to do for us, his purpose. But here specifically, there are some things he wants them to know. And by extension, of course, wants us to understand. Things he is praying for God to show them, to teach them. First, the hope. That you would understand the hope to which he has called you. What is our hope? What does it mean that we've been called? These are some things that he wants them to understand. The riches of his glorious inheritance... What is that inheritance? Why is it so glorious? What is rich about it? The, the idea of rich, of course, as opposed to poverty. The, the abundance of this inheritance. And then finally, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. What power is he showing? How is that power manifesting? What does that look like? And so over the next dozen or so verses, as we get into chapter 2, well, the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, of course, those chapters are just made up, right? He spends the next few verses explaining these ideas. What is the hope to which we are called? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? What is the glorious inheritance? That's what he's going to unpack in the next few verses. We'll begin with the immeasurable greatness of his power. Verse 19. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Two ways this power is manifested. The immeasurable greatness of his power. Number one, of course, is the resurrection. Destroying the power of death, he says in 1 Corinthians 14. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? It's gone. Christ destroyed it. He killed it. He has given us victory over the power of death by the immeasurable greatness of his power according to the working of his great might when he raised him from the dead. That's why this is the central event of our faith, right? The pillar of our faith is the resurrection. That's the greatest manifestation of his power. And, you know, I think about this sometimes about the, the relative power of miracles. There's a lot of miracles in the Bible, even not miracles, supernatural events in the Bible. If you're just going on a cosmic scale, there is one, I think, clear, runaway, number one most powerful miracle or supernatural event, and that is the day the sun stood still. You think about what's going on there, the day the sun stood still. There's one of two things happening. Now, he could just sort of make the light just appear the way that it needs to appear, or... He's stopping the rotation of the earth. Like, just think about that for a minute. Stopping how the earth spins, creating some sort of geosynchronous orbit so that the sun doesn't appear to move in the sky. That's crazy. That's just a crazy amount of power. And yet, even that, we would say, is inferior to the resurrection. We could conceive of, I could conceive of, a way 
Now, again, it would be very difficult, but I could conceive of what it would take for us to move the Earth. Like, we could physically figure out how to do that, be astronomically powerful, but bringing someone back from the dead, bringing their soul back into the body, that's not a thing that we can accomplish, no matter what amount of power we bring to bear. Even if we could harness all of the power of the sun, we could not do that thing. That is a thing that is not accomplishable by physical means. It is a thing that only God can accomplish, which is why it is the great work of the working of his great might. The second way then that this power is manifest, his dominion and rule right now. Now he did raise him from the dead, but then note the past tense. He put all things under his feet. He did that already. That's happened. He has put him, seated him, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in this age. Now, of course, the age to come. We'll talk about the inheritance in just a minute. But his rule right now. This is a thing that is happening right now. The immeasurable greatness of his power. Not just in the resurrection, but in his rule and dominion. Of course, over the church, he gave as head over all things. He is in charge of us. But not just over the church. Over what? Over every rule and authority and power and dominion over all things. How often do you think about the power of God? Power of Jesus in your life. How often do you conceptualize Jesus as your ruler? Is that how you think about Jesus primarily? I think we think about Jesus as our friend, our advocate, our intercessor maybe. Maybe you think about him as a high priest. Maybe you think about him as a savior. All of those things are true. How often do you think about Jesus as the one who is in charge? The one who is the ruler of your life. Understanding every spiritual blessing, understanding God's eternal purpose, in large part depends on our willingness to evaluate and consider Jesus our king, our ruler, the one who is in charge of our lives. The second part then, the hope to which he has called you. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What is the hope to which he has called you? It is the hope that we will avoid the consequences of our sin. That's the hope, fundamentally, right? The hope is that I will stop being a child of wrath. What does it mean that they were by nature children of wrath? Ones who were destined for wrath. That's what that means, right? Ones who are inevitably going to receive the wrath of God as punishment for sin. That's the hope. The hope is that we will not have that consequence, to have the wrath that is going to come upon us. The hope is that we will be set free from the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? The prince of the power of the air. Isn't that the devil? He calls him in Corinthians the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers and keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God. The hope is that we will be set free from him. And in some ways we are now, ultimately, but ultimately, we still face temptation. We still face difficulty. We talked about this in our teen class on Wednesday. He's still active. He's still working against us. He's still trying to overcome us. He's still trying to get us to stumble and fall, to follow our own desires. In large ways, he fails because of the power of God, right? God being ruler of our lives. 
but I still have to deal with it. I still have to deal with it now in this life. My hope is that I will be set free from that. Eventually, I'll be gone. It'll be done. I won't have to deal with him anymore. If I'm able to resist him now, through, again, the power of Jesus. Which leads us to the second part of this, the hope to which he has called you. This idea of the call. You call somebody. One of the things I really like from Stan, Tracy's dad, he would always say about phone calls, right? He would always say, a phone call is a request to talk to me. I think sometimes we don't act that way, right? That if somebody calls, I have to answer this. I can't just ignore them. That's so rude. No, Stan was like, it's a, it's a request. The idea of the call of God, the hope to which he has called us, he's asking us to submit to him, asking us to answer, to do the things that he wants, but he's not going to force us to do. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God the call, the gift, he's offering it to us if what? If we will answer. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So we are, for he, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. What is the call of this hope? To stop being a son of disobedience. To stop being a child of wrath and to do the good works that God prepared for us to do. He's calling all the time. Chris, here's a good thing that you could do. Chris, here's another good thing that you could do. Chris, I've set up all this good stuff that you could do. And how many times do I reject his call? I'm too busy, God. I don't want to do that today. I can't do that. That's too hard. That's too complicated. That's too inconvenient. Or more often, I just don't want to. Isn't that really what it comes down to? I just don't want to. But the call, which is connected to the hope, I can only have the hope, the hope that I'll be set free from wrath, the hope that I'll be set free from the power, a prince of the power of the air, the hope that I will have this inheritance that we're going to talk about. I can only have that hope if I answer the call to come out of the world to do the good works that he has prepared for me to do. Fortunately, our hope does not rely on our ability he knows we're going to make mistakes. He knows we're going to fail. But he still expects us to do our best, doesn't he? To do all that we can do. Now, I'm going to be incompetent sometimes. I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to do bad things. And, and sometimes I'm going to try to do the works and not do them very well. But fortunately, what does he say? It's his power, the immeasurable greatness of his power. He has more than enough power to pick up my slack. But he still expects me to do the best that I can do. Do we act like people who have hope in something better? What distinguishes us from everyone else who doesn't know God's hope? If the answer is there's nothing different about your life than the random person on the street, your hope is not obvious. Maybe you don't, you're not acting like that hope is real. If my hope is set, not just in this age, but the age to come, that should lead to some different behavior in this life. We'll conclude with the idea of the riches of his glorious inheritance. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. 
It's interesting the tenses of these words. There is a dual nature here of this inheritance. In some sense, we have the inheritance now, right? The, um, the riches of his glorious inheritance. I've been made alive already. That's happened. We think about the greatness of his power, raising him from the dead. Part of that greatness of his power, the, um, the, the uh, immeasurable greatness of his power is that I'm alive now. Not, of course, physically I'm alive already, but my soul is alive. I've been made alive even though I was separated from God. Now I'm alive again. And it's interesting the way he says this. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. The idea that I've already been seated with him in the heavenly places. I belong with Jesus. My home is with Jesus. I am in a connected state with Jesus. And yet there is a more full hope to come, isn't there? The inheritance that I partially experience now but that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In some ways, I know what that's like. I appreciated Keith's prayer, the, the, the taste of it that we get here, the fellowship with one another, the connection to one another, the comfort that we have in one another, the security that we have in one another. The help when we need help. The temptation or struggling or sin or, or some difficulty in our life that we have in one another. That's part of it now. But the immeasurable riches of his grace, the riches of his glorious inheritance, ultimately to be realized in perfection in the age to come. When I don't have to deal with any more temptation. and I don't have to deal with any more struggles. We get all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff. Here I get some good stuff, but it mix, it's mixed in with some bad stuff, right? Even the comfort of fellowship. I know, guys, I can be a little bit of a jerk sometimes. I'm imperfect. You have to put up with me. I have to put up with you. I know none of you are perfect either. But when we get to the second part, the coming ages, we get all of the good stuff and none of the bad stuff. Won't that be great? Won't that be awesome? There's a, a future thing to come that is greater and ultimately the question is this. What are you willing to give up in pursuit of that inheritance? The riches of his glorious inheritance. Not stingy. Not just the bare minimum. Not just a pittance. But the riches of his glorious inheritance. Was it worth, what is it worth to you? We think about the call. He's calling us all the time. And we reject him. Why? For any number of reasons. I'm too busy. I don't have time. I don't want to. It'll make my life complicated. It'll make my relationship with my boss or my spouse or my friends. It'll make that strained. You know, we can come up with reason after reason after reason after reason. But at the end of the day, we have to ask the question, what is it worth? What does Jesus say in another place? What is it worth a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? There's a cost-benefit analysis that we all have to run here. Ephesians 1, 15 through 18, we go back to this idea. This prayer for knowledge. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. He's heard of that. They, he had some connection with them. He knew who they were. They were doing some good. They were trying in some way. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. 
The prince of the power of the air wants to cloud our understanding, to get in the way, to obfuscate, to shadow, to cause confusion, right? That maybe I don't think enough about the inheritance to come. Maybe I don't think enough about the good that God wants me to do. Maybe I don't understand what that is. And, and the devil is trying all the time to give us false understanding, to mislead us, to lead us into other things, ultimately to prevent us from understanding what God wants for us. And so this is my prayer for you. I think about this very personally. As I think about you, not, not editorial you, but literally you that I'm looking at right now. I'm so thankful that you have faith. That you're here tonight. You're here tonight. Why? Because you love God. You love each other. Don't you? I hope we do. I think about the love that we have for each other in this room. And I'm so thankful for that. It would be so hard to follow God with, without each other, wouldn't it? I don't know that I could do it. Actually, that's not true. I know that I could not do it without the love of my fellow saints. But I also pray that you will understand and accept the truth of God's purpose for your life. That there is something better waiting for us. And in the meantime, there's good for us to do. Together. But even if we stumble and we fall... We keep going, right? We pick one another up and we do the good that God has for us to do. The invitation then, again, is very simple. To join our family. To look around and see the people here that want the best for you. I believe that that's everyone here who wants the best for you. Not only in this life, but the life to come. And you could participate in that. Now we know... We stumble and we fall. Maybe that's where you're at right now. You're at a low point. That's okay. I'll be at a low point tomorrow. And Keith will be at a low point Tuesday. And Greg, you can have a turn on Wednesday. Because the rest of us will lift each other up, won't we? So the invitation is simple. If you need help, come while we stand and sing.